Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Popular Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thanks for joining me again. Today, my guest is Greg Cott, who is a music critic at the Chicago Tribune, and he has written the book, Ripped, How the Wired Generation Revolutionized Music, which was published by Scribner in 2009. The book itself documents the dizzying changes in the music industry over the past 15 years. And as a historian, I'm always particularly interested in eras of time where you saw deep or rapid change take place. And really, between 1999 and 2013, you really couldn't, I think, point to many other eras that have seen a more rapid change in the nature of the way an industry operates than what has happened to the music industry since the advent of Napster in 1999, the introduction of the MP3 file to popular awareness afterwards, and then all of the changes which subsequently came to the industry as well documented here by Greg Cott. Um, the one example that really came to mind when I was thinking about this book is what happened to the uh, animal transport industry in the early part of the 20th century. There were individuals who were strong advocates for the old system of getting around, meaning horse transport. And when individuals like Henry Ford and others brought the internal combustion engine to local roads and cities and in rural areas, there was a lot of scoffing and a lot of sense of, well, this is never going to stick. Well, much the same way as Greg Cott points out in his book, uh, when he mentioned an MP3 for the first time in one of his columns, he received a phone call from a music industry executive who was completely oblivious to this new way of sharing music files. And what we see is that what has uh, played out since the turn of the 21st century is all of the old standbys and the ways that music was marketed, music was consumed, and really the way the music was produced or made have really fallen by the wayside. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Greg. I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to listen now, and thanks. Hi, Greg. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. You're uh, in Chicago? I am indeed. I'm in Tulsa, so we're doing a very Midwest edition of New Books and Popular Music. And um, it's been uh, my great pleasure to revisit your book, Ripped, which I really enjoyed when I first uh, read it a few years ago. And uh, timely and relevant still today, I think because the trend that you've, uh, I think, laid out very clearly in the book is still going on and is going to be kind of something that can't be stopped, which I want to talk to you about at great length. But um, just in sort of opening up our conversation, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your past, and how you came to write this book? Uh, I've been the music critic, uh, pop music critic at the Chicago Tribune since 1990, um, covering not only you know concerts and reviewing albums, but also reporting on the new side of the music business. So I've done a lot of reporting over the years, and uh, the digital aspect of uh, music uh, became a huge news story starting in probably like the mid mid to late 90s. The whole idea about MP3 files. I remember distinctly a uh, 
executive at a major record label uh, who shall remain nameless uh, to protect him from a total embarrassment. But uh, a guy who should have known this at the time and seen it coming uh, called me up and said, I've been reading your stuff about all this digital music, and what, what, can you explain to me what an MP3 file is? And um, I said, well, I could explain that to you, but I think you might want to check up on it yourself because it's going to be your future in a few years here, and it's coming down hard. Uh, but, you know, in the course of, of writing, uh, reporting on this story as it sort of evolved uh, for the Tribune, uh, you know, it, it was clear that uh, it was a major, major change in the way music was going to be made and, and distributed and consumed, and it was going to have a huge effect on the business. And um, at a certain point, that became it became very apparent that this is a book. Um, I think the first, from, say, 99 to, uh, 1999 to 2009, which is basically the, the era that the book covers, uh, th- those 10 years were, or were a major change, uh, historical change in the way uh, you know, music was uh, was made, distributed, consumed uh, in, in a way that hadn't been equaled since maybe the introduction of the phonograph. Right. You know, a century before. Right. You know, um, I'm a historian, and one of the things that's a trope in um, academic history is the golden age. And so, if you were going to write a history of labor unions, and you were someone who's sympathetic to big labor unions, you would look back on the the golden age of the 1950s and 60s at the power the UAW had, and kind of lament that decline. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting about your book is that it's, it's I don't think there is a golden age um, myth in this book about the music industry. Is there ever been a time in your estimation that the music industry was about developing artists and making really good music uh, than well, sort I, of ripping off people? Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's really the, uh, you know, kind of the subtext of a lot of the argument in the book is that everybody was screaming about being ripped off and, and the uh, uh, record industry was using these moral arguments. And it just struck me as incredibly ironic for the music industry to suddenly, you know, be donning these self-righteous uh, clothes in regard to this uh, development that was ruining their business in their eyes, uh, because it was the most amoral industry, right. <laughs> you know, the last hundred years. I mean, I'm sure there were contenders for that title, but the music industry was uh, as, as impure as anyone, ripping off artists left and right. I mean... You know, reporting on the industry, talking to artists, you know, you recognize time after time the stories are so similar uh, of artists uh, feeling like they weren't uh, compensated properly for their work, uh, make selling lots of records. I mean, I, I, um, you know, got to know a lot of the Chicago blues guys, for example, you know, for Buddy Guy, Otis Rush, Pine Top Perkins, not one of them. You can say, well, I can't really re- actually remember receiving a royalty for <laughs> anything right. I did until recently. You know, it was uh, Buddy Guy didn't really start getting paid until, you know, he was well into his 50s. John Lee Hooker, I, I, I did a major piece on him uh, in the late 90s when he finally was getting paid uh, for uh, his music. But he, he told me he'd, he'd never gotten a royalty check until uh, the late 80s. And, you know, here's a man that sold millions of millions of records. You know, Roger McGuinn standing up uh, testifying in Congress saying he'd never gotten a royalty check for a Birds album sale. You know, this is pretty pretty uh, amazing stuff. 
Um, so the industry, um, you know, the golden age of the industry in, term, in terms of benefiting artists, yes, there were benefits. There was, these artists benefited from the exposure. I'm not saying it was completely evil. Uh, there was exposure to be had. Uh, there was marketing campaigns to be run. It definitely helped a lot of these bands uh, find a bigger audience. But uh, to say that they were pure and, and, and there was a golden age in terms of the way they treated artists, I'm not sure there ever was one uh, like that. I think there was a... I think it was a long history of exploitation, really. Yeah, and I, I thought one of the, the great things you pointed out was the... Um rising costs of CDs. And I mean, even looking back to the seventies, when you look at the time when the industry was really probably most awash with cash, I'm thinking of the late seventies with rumors and Saturday night fever soundtrack and things like that. I mean, you point out that the, you know, the price of CDs just kept going up and up and up in the nineties, sort of before the, the dam broke and the digital age was upon us. And now the prices of course have plummeted. But, um, I thought that was really an important point to make is that there was, you know, TVs are getting cheaper. Laptops are getting cheaper and CDs are getting more expensive. Yeah, the, the promise was when the CDs were introduced in the early 80s that once they started uh, you know, creating more manufacturing plants that the price was going to go down. They were going to create more of these suckers so they didn't need to charge so much for them. And, you know, in terms of the actual process of, of uh, you know, pressing up a compact disc, it's much less complicated than what's involved in a, in a, in a vinyl album, for example. Right. And, and yet, at the same time, the the price of the CDs not only um, incre increased, but you know there, there's some question as to the actual quality of uh, the quality control of these CDs. You know, there, there's still people out there who'll tell you these uh, the CDs that you have in your collection will deteriorate over time, and and you know one day you'll end up uh, uh, dropping it into the CD slot and, and it won't play. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure I'd go that far. But I do think that uh, the industry realized, hey, people are buying these things at this price. There's no reason for us to drop the price. Why? Why do we need to? Um, it was a it was a monopoly essentially. You had only one way to get a record, right. uh, a song, uh, and and what was really obnoxious about it, I thought. I think the final nail in the coffin um, was the fact that, well, you know, we don't really need singles anymore. Um, We'll make them buy the album. Right. You know, they're the entree uh, for a lot of young people to uh, the joys of music was that single, the ability to have the the cassette or, or the forty five or the cuss single. Uh, those were just easy, low you know, va uh, low priced right. entry points for young music consumers to to get into music. But uh, you know, eventually uh, in the CD age they they phased those out. You do, you couldn't even get the, you couldn't get the CD singles anymore. You had to buy the 1899 uh CD in order to get the one song by Smash Mouth or uh, Britney Spears that you wanted. And uh, I I think once uh, you know, the MP3 files became uh, ubiquitous. It became so easy to get them. You know, that one song that you wanted was available at Napster. Um, it was an easy decision for the consumers to say, hey, I, you know, this is, this is what I want. I just want this one song, and here's an easy way for me to get it. I'm going to take option number two. I'm going to I'm going to go for door number two instead of going down to to Best Buy and spending eighteen ninety nine for the CD. Right, and I, I think just to, to add add to that, the other thing that happened is, as you well know, is that CDs encouraged artists to make longer and longer records, and so there was this sort of myth that oh well, you're paying more, but you're getting sixty five minutes of music. Well, you were, but five of those songs never would have made a vinyl record. They would have been cut by the producer because they weren't up to snuff, and so you still end up with 
two decent songs and you know and tw- ten songs you don't really like. Well, that's uh, you know that's the aesthetic side of it, and that's something I tried to address in the book as well. But it's uh, you're absolutely right; it's a sort of uh, an ancillary issue here in a lot of ways. But I think central to uh, you know the way fans felt ripped off and dissatisfied with right. the way things were going by the by the main, mainstream music industry, they did not feel like they were getting value. They did not feel like they were being treated. Um, like a customer, you know, it was a demographic. We're just selling, and, we're, and it was a monopoly demographic. You know, you you either buy the 64-ounce uh, bottle of uh, Coke from us or you can't get it in any other form. We're not going to sell you it in a 12-ounce form. We're not going to sell it to you in the way you want. You have to buy it the way we want you to, 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 to buy it. And uh, right. there was just a feeling of, of incredible resentment built up over especially over the last 10 years. I mean, before, you know, as, as the Napster era dawned, there was this incredible sense that, you know, the revolution was, uh, you know, uh, we were on the precipice of a revolution, but the way to ignite that revolution wasn't immediately apparent. And right. then when Napster came along, suddenly the spark was lit. Right. And we should we should talk about the, the Metallica Napster incident, and I'd love to hear your take on it, because I think for a lot of people my age, I'm 43, you know, who maybe weren't as quite tuned into what was going on with um, teenagers and computers, that was really the first time I had really kind of heard about Napster, I think, in a big, big way. I mean, I may have heard it mentioned, but that was kind of the big opening of that world to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was a big turning point. Um, big, big band, huge band, um, mega-selling band. And I, I had been talking to a lot of uh, artists at this point about their feelings about uh, Napster, and a lot of them were very ambivalent about it. They were, you know, they understood the impulse, what was going on there, and at the same time they were, you know, feeling very uneasy about the fact that their music was suddenly widely available for free on the internet and they didn't know what to make of that they weren't they were as ill prepared as the music industry <clears throat> was for that uh, occurrence in a lot of ways uh but at the same time it wasn't their job to be prepared for that they were creating the music and they and their and their feeling was it was the industry's job to sell it and now they were saying, well, wait a minute, nothing's being sold here it's being given away uh but at the same time they understood that they they sided at least partially sided with their fans, saying, well, wait a minute, they're, you know, our fans are, they, they want this option, and, and the industry's not giving it to them, so right. I can understand why they would want to do this. It's, uh, you know, it's, so they, they saw it from both sides, and they, and they weren't taking, like, a firm stand, like, Napster's really bad, and, uh, you know, you need, to, you need to stop this. They understood what was going on, and they were hoping that some kind of a solution, some kind of a compromise would be able to be created because of what Napster had started. But Metallica basically just marched right in and said, wait a minute, this is wrong, this is screwed up, we're, uh, we're shutting you down. That was their basic impulse. You know, they, they filed a lawsuit in uh, U.S. District Court in, in uh, Northern California, I focused on it in the book, basically con- you know, accusing Napster of copyright infringement and racketeering and uh, unlawful use of digital audio interface devices or some, some such language. And um, it was the first serious uh, attack on, on peer-to-peer file sharing uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the U.S. From a, from a major rock band. Uh, famously, they, um, they went to the Napster offices and, uh, you know, demanded, <laughs> demanded their music be given back to them. It was, right. it was you know, essentially a, uh, the, uh, kind of a bullying tactic. You know, we're going to not only sue you into 
uh, non-existence. We're going to embarrass you and, and, and ridicule you in public. We're going to make a big show out of this. Um, and I think it just rubbed people the wrong way. I think a, uh, you know, a, a sports parallel might be uh, the LeBron James press conference right. when he decided to switch teams. You know, like, you want us to applaud you for this? You want us to, you know, give you uh, our attention for, for, you know, switching teams and making yourself even richer than right. you already are? There was a perception that here's Metallica, a band that uh, some people perceived as like, you, you could give your music away for the rest of your career, and still be multimillionaires. Oh, you don't even you don't need the money anymore. But you know, of course, that's that's a wrong-headed attitude right. to have. I mean, of course, they deserve compensation for whatever their work is. But they did it in such a ham-fisted, ham-fisted fashion that they couldn't help but turn people against them. And then the other irony in this was that I still have in my collection somewhere. A copy of a copy of a copy of the first Metallica EP that Lars Ulrich had sent out on cassette to a hundred of his friends and said, "Distribute this for you know, give this to your friends, let them listen to it. We don't care how you get it out there, get it out there, let people listen to our music, you know, for free. Right. You know, it was just a way of that band getting. You know, so the band essentially got um, its first big reviews in magazines as a result of passing out this uh, cassette, DIY style, peer-to-peer, you know, 30, uh, 20 years ahead of its time, uh, and they understood, right. they understood the um, the business transaction that was going on there. Yes, you were getting the music for free, but you're exposing your music to many more people who in turn may come back and, and, and reward you tenfold by going to your shows and buying your subsequent records, you know, so that that was the exchange that was going on here, and Napster was essentially widening the potential of that. And if anybody could have seen that, uh, you you would think it would have been Lars Ulrich, who's who's the guy who sort of initiated that same kind of impulse twenty years uh, earlier with his own band. So, on on several levels, this was an incredibly stupid, uh, you know, uh, undertaking by Metallica. And I talked to. Ulrich a few years after the fact, uh, and I'd written some pretty harsh things about it at the time in the Tribune and, and elsewhere, and um, he, had, he and I had a very frank discussion about it, and he, his whole point was that uh, he felt a bit, he didn't feel like he would have done it any differently, but I think he also understood what he had done and why the reaction was what it was. Like, that was kind of dumb of us to, to react the way we did, even though I still feel the same way I did at that point about, uh, you know, my music giving away for free. We were ticked off. And, uh, you know, but at that point it was too late. I, I don't think Metallica's ever recovered from that in its, in its perception. Because I think for, throughout much of the 80s and even the 90s when they became this huge band, uh, they, they, they still sort of had a populist people's band sort of vibe about, about them. And I don't think anybody feels that way about them now. No, I, I think you're right. And uh, just as an aside, yeah, I had the, the same... Uh I don't want to take us too far afield here, but I had the same uh, cassette eventually. I got it. I mean, traded tapes in the 80s like a lot of people you did. I mean, that was what people did. I mean, you went to the back of Circus Magazine. You found some you know, P.O. box in yeah, Montana, right. and you wrote to the person, and you you got live recordings if you were a fan. Um, and so, yeah, that was, I think, something that actually was pretty widely known, as you point out, by the time the Napster thing cir- circulated, that um, that really came back and was you know, brought to Lars's attention that we haven't forgotten that you did the same thing, basically, just to uh, 
to populate, uh, to make your band popular. Um, but to sort of lead us further down this road, I thought um, one thing your book does a tremendously good job is of showing how, uh, if Metallica was a bit ham-fisted, uh, that the industry was a hundredfold more times ham-fisted in the way it handled the quote-unquote copyright infringements by, uh, for example, suing sim- single mothers for uh, for having uh, MP3s. Yeah, that was uh, ridiculous. And talk about uh, talk about you know. Uh, Turning on your customers and and turning them into criminals. I mean, I still have uh, record industry executives who are outraged by that idea that I I wrote that several times. This whole notion of uh, you know an industry turning on its customers and you know the, 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 these executives would react you know, you know extremely uh, outraged, saying how can you call them customers? They're walking into our into our uh, into our building and stealing our stuff and walking out and you're calling that you know you're saying we shouldn't do anything about it I said no I didn't I didn't say you shouldn't do anything about it I said you shouldn't sue them you know here is essentially what was going on in 2003 uh, the record industry said okay we, we're this peer-to-peer file sharing is now out of hand we shut down Napster uh, which was really their last last hope to sort of corral this um, this new trend, the, you know, there's a central server with Napster, and they could have potentially uh, co-opted it. And, and Napster was ready to ready to get in bed with the big guys and say, okay, we'll 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 uh, we'll let you use our software. You know, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll help you. You know, uh, let just let us live. And the industry said, nope, this this MP3 thing is never going to take off. And if it, you know, we're going to be better off if we just crush you and and never let you uh, never let you live. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, the technology, of course, outruns the industry, and now you've got uh, peer-to-peer f- file sharing in in vogue, and 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 there is no central server anymore. And now you're talking about individual users talking to other right. music lovers and exchanging music that way. So the industry's bright idea is we're going to go after the uh, the most massive infringers that we can find and, and shut them down. We're going to. Uh, threaten all these peer-to-peer file shares because we can't possibly shut them all down by taking a few uh, a few scapegoats and and shutting them down and and making a public spectacle of them. We're going to find them. We're going to take them to court if need be. Um, we're we're going to take them off the internet. Um, we're we're going to publicly shame them and sue them and fine them uh, for their infringement. Which you know again the such an incredibly a stupid idea, and also, you know, not only alienating your customers, but also the very notion that you are somehow going to police the activity that people do in the privacy of their own homes at their computers. Okay, you're going to say, this is illegal infringing activity, we're going to shut you down, we're going to take you off the internet, etc. Um, a lot of these people, I'm convinced, didn't know any better uh, that they were infringing. They didn't know if it was a copyrighted file or not. They didn't care. They just knew that they were receiving something that they liked on the internet, and they were going to, to going to listen to it. A friend just sent me this file of this great song. I want to play it. Now you're an infringer. Now technically you're a criminal. So you know, at the rate of file sharing in the United States, uh, you know, by the mid 2000s, we're talking about probably close to half the population would have qualified as criminals under current copyright law. 
So if you've got half, half your country uh, considered criminals because of some activity they're performing in the privacy of their own home, you've got a real problem. You've got a problem with your law or, or you've got your problem with your education system, probably some combination of the, of the two, two above things. But the last thing you want to do is start going after people for doing something like this. And it's clearly a case where, where you're in this fluid area where things are changing much faster and the technology and the law are able to keep up with it. And, you know, to sue people was just the most, you know, talk about Metallica shooting itself in the foot. The industry basically, you know, turned itself into a, if it hadn't been a pariah already, it certainly was after they started suing the infringers. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, uh, from from looking at it from the standpoint of that moment in time, of course, it's, it's shocking. But uh, you point out in the book, too, that there was... Um, Years and years and years earlier, 1920s, there were worries that the home phonograph needs to be targeted because it's going to take away um, the audience for live music, which, again, in in retrospect, is just hard to to comprehend. But it fits in this mindset with the industry that we own the monopoly. We own we own this and we are going to demand that it remains our monopoly. Exactly, and and the whole idea of change as being central to the survival, or the ability to adapt and change being central to the survival of any business over an extended period of time. And, you know, you look at the history of this, and you're exactly right. The history of the music industry is one of fighting every technological change that has come across it because it threatens the, the status quo. When, in fact, every technological change, let's talk about the phonograph, let's talk about the introduction of music on radio, let's talk about the introduction of the cassettes. Right. Remember the ads that the industry took out around circa 1980? Yes. Uh, home taping is killing music. You know, the idea that you would go home uh, buy, you know, with an album that you had purchased at the store, tape it, and then, you know, give the cassettes to all your friends so that, you know, one album sale would end up, you know, with 10, 10 people listening to the album in the privacy of their own homes and their cassettes. No, it did not kill music. In fact, it expanded the audience for music. It only whetted the enthusiasm for people to want more right. music. Every technological change has done exactly that. Now you have an exponential explosion in the interest in music. Suddenly, indie bands who couldn't get a prayer of getting played on radio, commercial radio or MTV, were getting exposed through the Internet and through peer-to-peer file sharing. And, and bands like Death Cab for Cutie, right. who no one had heard of, suddenly were getting uh, their music played on, on, on television shows uh, because of the way people were exchanging music and turning each other on to music. Um, this incredible technological advance, I, I would argue, the, the single biggest leap in terms of uh, distribution in the history of, of, of culture, really, um, it was being looked upon as, as a bad thing by, by the industry. So it, it's an incredibly myopic uh, viewpoint. And boy, it, it, you know, if the, here's an industry that was just willing itself to death. It was basically saying, no, 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 no. You know, let's put our head into the sand. Let's go back to the days of 1995 when everybody was buying 1899 CDs and we controlled everything. Now you don't control everything. Right. Now your fans are, are distributors. Now, you, now your fans are, are not only consumers, but they're, they're A&R people. They're turning people on to other music. They're the most powerful entity in the music business, not Tommy Mottola in the corner office at, uh, right. at Sony. So it was, it was too much for the industry to bear that sort of power change but that's exactly what happened in in those 10 years right you know the uh, the, the thing that i 
historians don't usually um, spend much time on is, is the what if. Um, but I, I have to wonder, I mean, I look at your, your, your book and um, it captures that moment in time, particularly around 2005 as well, so well about when iTunes is introduced. And of course, you know, thinking back on that, that seems like a lifetime ago, but it was really only, you know, just a few years ago. Um, and you, you mentioned that the Outcast single that was so successful then only was selling about something like, I don't know, 10,000 paid downloads versus about 300,000 unpaid downloads and mm-hmm. other venues. Do, do you think that if the industry had sort of gotten on board earlier that that would have been a different dynamic by by um 2005 I, I guess what i'm asking is do you think that people just didn't buy into itunes because it was too late they had already had other habits or what do you what do you think well i think you know i mean itunes was it was incredibly successful still i mean it, you know, there was a huge huge peer-to-peer market out there that uh dwarfed itunes but right in terms of, of uh, you know, a commercial success story for the music industry over the last 10 years, iTunes is probably at the very top of, right. of the heap in terms of, you know, here's something that we didn't even think about. And Steve Jobs basically said, you guys, you know, you guys might want to try this. I think that they were very reluctant uh, to, uh, you know, uh, allow somebody from outside the club, as it were, to show them how to do their business. But that's essentially what Apple did with iTunes. Right. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, again, that should have been the industry's idea. It shouldn't have had to come out, you know, it shouldn't have come up from outside, right. uh, you know, the, the industry. I mean, that should have been something that um, these highly paid executives were working on in 1995, 96, 97, 98, when this thing was just bubbling, starting to bubble. And I, I think at the time, you know, like I mentioned at the top, the executive calling me and saying, "What's an MP3 file?" They couldn't imagine a world where this would be popular. Um, the, you know, at the time with the with the telephone line connections with your internet providers, it was it, you know the downloading time was so slow. Nobody could imagine waiting you know hours to download an album or something like that. It just seemed like beyond the scope of imagination. But anybody who was savvy, tech savvy at that moment, uh, could have told you. No, this is gonna this is gonna get a lot better here real soon. And uh, you know, the universities, of course, were at the leading edge of the technology. With you know, first of all, just even having computers accessible to their students, but also in the in the in the way that they were able to um, use the uh, higher server speeds. Uh, and suddenly, as soon as you got the high, those high server speeds, then you then the game changed big time. And and that's something that the industry could have easily foreseen. But it, to me, it was almost a willful shutting out of right. any new information that might have upset, because they were so, you know, you have to understand the climate at these big music companies in the late 90s. There was a huge wave of consolidation going on. And uh, as a number of executives told me at the time, especially some actual music-loving executives uh, who, who genuinely loved music and love artists and 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 loved the idea of of helping artists find a bigger audience they were appalled that basically their entire lives it's now started to come around uh, it started to revolve around pleasing their shareholders of of that company so it was all about those quarterly reports you've got to show x amount of growth every quarter a rare we're gonna we're gonna change everything you know the the executives are gonna get fired so these guys thought I've got to hang on to my job. It was about job preservation at this point. Um, I'm, so I've got to I've got to keep cranking out the profits. 
and they didn't want to invest in something new. You know, CDs were doing great. Let's keep pumping this uh, this oil well here until it runs dry. We don't ever see it running dry. They just didn't envision that day. There was no long-term planning going on at all. And anything that threatened the quarterly profit statement was a threat to their job, their existence. It, you know, it didn't matter what was going to happen five years down the road with Napster. To them, it was about quarter-to-quarter profits. So the long-term thinking was completely... Uh, absent in, in the big companies at the most crucial time in their history. Right. And as a result, they got bit in the butt big time and, uh, you know, not only didn't see it coming, but didn't want to see it coming. And that, you know, they deserved everything they got, but that was the climate that enabled it to happen. Right. You know, I, I, as I was getting ready to talk to you, I was trying to think of the proper analogies. I kept racking my brain. And the one that just came to me, which um, I think fits exactly, is that um, if you read some books about the um, – the 1970s auto industry in the United States, there are accounts of people going up to executives and saying, you know, hey, this Volkswagen Beetle is the American auto executives. This is a pretty, you know, people like this car, or, you know, yeah. or these smaller cars, they have some have some merit. And the answers always were things like, well, the Beetle's popular in California because people in California are weird. They're into yoga. <laughs> They're into right. you know, they're into uh, bizarre things. It's never going to catch on. And it was right. the same thing when these Japanese automakers came and they said, you know, hey, we can make this engine that actually burns better uh, fuel economy and also actually doesn't need a catalytic converter. I and mean, there was this scoffing of this sort of don't tell us what to do, this very insular club in Detroit. And we see what happened there. And I think this is a similar story. Yeah, it, insularity is, is absolutely right. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, monolithic corporations right. now, big multinational right. corporations that move very slowly by their very natures. And uh, same thing with radio. You know, it was uh, it was down to, uh, I think by the end of the 90s, we were talking about six big, big, big multinationals that dominated the music industry. Uh, it's now down to, what, three, uh, three and a half, you know, um, and uh, two major radio corporations, really one. I mean, Clear Channel was, was taking over. So you had this incredibly uh, monolithic, uh, top-heavy industry and, uh, you know, basically a, a narrow funnel uh, of of music, and they decided everything. Um, and 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 they, their their whole modus operandi was uh, was self preservation. Right. It wasn't about hey, we've got a future here that is expanding. It's more about holding on to the monopolistic right. power that they already had, right. and fearful of anything that might uh, you know might erode that in any way. So something like Apple and iTunes. I mean, he was just you know. Uh, he was Jobs was was essentially um, looked upon with great skepticism and as kind of a crackpot when he first started broaching ideas about you know digital distribution of music and creating an iTunes like store. I mean this you know they, they could have they could have done an iTunes years before they actually uh, you know acceded to the idea. Right. Uh, but uh, they they just thought the guy was a crackpot. Who's going to buy this stuff? You know, why would they want it, you know? Um, and, 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 and he was an outsider, too. You know, he wasn't, a, he wasn't one of the boys in the club, you know? He wasn't a Matola or, a, you know, a Howie Klein or, or any of these guys who were, who were running the industry at the time. He was right. an outsider and, and perceived with a great deal of skepticism. But the technology industry, you know, was the one that it ruined the industry, but it also in some ways saved the industry because it created a, a legitimate platform for digital music to be bought and purchased. You know, and now, and now you're now you're seeing a scenario where the industry is finally catching up, but it, it really has nothing to do with them. It was because of uh, 
because of uh, what what Apple was able to do with with iTunes and all the all the technology industries were able to sort of come in and create platforms for this music to be sold instead of just uh, as uh, as uh, the YouTube manager said uh, you know high tech burglary kits for right. creating high tech burglary kits right. for. For, uh, for the industry. Right. You know, to kind of lead us back to what we were talking about earlier with, with tape trading and this idea that nothing um, you know, new is totally new, I thought the, the part of the book where you talked about the Grateful Dead as a template that bands like Wilco and Fish could use for saying, well, you know what, selling records maybe isn't the most important thing we need to do as a band. Can you talk a little bit about that and where you think that stands today, a few years after you wrote the book, in terms of is that still a viable model or model that bands are adopting it's still a viable model i think the year the dead were were decades ahead of their time in in seeing that scenario um i did a lot of reporting on the band i was um i actually spent some time on the road with them to more as a business story than a than a music story because it was so much bigger than than the music uh the music was at the heart of it but um they had uh, this in, incredibly enlightened uh attitude towards uh their relationship with their fans they um I think they were among the first bands to see their fans not just as consumers, because I think that was the attitude that sort of developed in the 70s and 80s with right. the industry's uh, complicity. But uh, co-conspirators, kind of, you know, you're, we're all in this together. It's not just about the band and, and we're the rock icons on the uh, exalted altar up here, and you're here to worship us. Right. It's like we're, we're we're throwing this big event and in order for this event to be fun and successful and, uh, you know, for everyone, everybody has to take part in it. Everybody has to share responsibility for it. So they treated their fans like peers. Um, and, you know, the whole idea of taping their shows, distributing it to their fan, you know, to the fan base, allowing that to happen, allowing really well-done recording, not just some kid sneaking a little tape deck into the show, under his uh, flannel shirt, but actually being able to set up at the soundboard right. and do a you know pretty high tech uh, recording of the show, and then be able to you know to to send that out to their uh, to all his friends afterward, that was really enlightened by the band because it it really helped spread the word about hey these guys are cool, uh, they sound pretty good. I'm going to go check them out when they're in town the next right. time. Um, so you know, brilliant, brilliant marketing strategy, and basically laid the laid the uh, groundwork for them to be an incredibly successful touring entity long after they essentially stopped making studio albums. Right. Um, you know, they, people forget that they were at their absolute zenith as a as a touring band uh, when they were making you know like one album a decade, right. basically. I mean, they had that one fluke hit, "Touch of Gray" in the late eighties, and sure that. That contributed to you know brought in brought in a new audience, but you don't just get the stadium level uh, you know overnight. I right. mean, they were able to do that by cultivating this audience and and taking care of it for a very long time. Right. And uh, they 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 absolutely are the peer to peer model before before the uh, technology uh, called it peer to peer file sharing. The the dead were were right on that idea uh, in, in terms of how they treated their fan base, and that 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 to me is the biggest single development of the of the last 10 years the widespread um, the widespread empowerment of the fan right as more or less the artist's equal and the artist recognizing that wanting that relationship wanting that one-to-one -one relationship with their fans uh, you know inviting their fan their fans into the club as it were they're right. you're, you're you're not only our fan you're our friend you're a co-conspirator you're our distributor you're our a and r guy 
you you are our greatest ambassador. You know, you you you're helping us sustain our li- our living, and we're you know, and we want to help you, uh, you know, uh, enjoy what we do. So that you know, it's a it's an incredibly uh, powerful relationship and a bond that's uh, I think been forged by the internet. But you know, absolutely, the dead understood that early on, and um, you know, they they are the they are the they are the pioneer band as far as I'm concerned when it comes to this stuff. Right. The um the thing that came to my head too, thinking about stadiums, is that a, a cynic looking at all this would say something along the lines of, "Well, you know, um, yeah, the, mu- the music has gotten free, become free in a lot of ways, but the industry is still screwing people over with insanely high ticket prices and T-shirt prices." I mean, you know, we're going to see—I saw Paul McCartney the other night, and the, the face value on the tickets will make your eyebrows go up. There's no question about it. It's very different yeah. than the the ten to twelve dollar, twenty dollar ticket price I paid to see arena shows in the 1980s in New Jersey. What, what's your thoughts about that whole trend towards this extraordinary jump in the price of the sort of merch and or tickets uh it's it's incredibly dispiriting um it's it's a major trend uh obviously it's been going on for quite a while uh, i think it's been fueled by the consolidation of the touring industry um that's the one disappointment i think is that even as the you know the record industry itself has started to fragment you still got this one monopoly basically running um uh, the major touring um markets in 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 North America and soon the world probably the way things are going um and that that has resulted in a you know skyrocketing ticket prices um bands are complicit in this too they don't have they can they could say hey we don't want to we don't want to participate in this. You know, you have to, you you know, we're, we're drawing the line in the sand. You can't charge more than 45 bucks for our show or something right. like that. They could certainly do that. Pearl Jam certainly did that at one point. Right. Uh, other bands stood up for, you know, the rights of their fans in terms of how much they were willing to bear uh, price-wise. But, you know, now you see bands basically saying, okay, if, if Joe Blow can get it, I can get it. You know, why not? You know, why not take the dough? If I can, you know, if I can get it, I, I deserve it. Right. And um, as a result, you priced a lot of, uh, a lot of people out of the, out of the concert going market. Um, there's no way a young person can go see the Rolling Stones now. Um, if they want, even if they wanted to, you know, they, they just couldn't afford it. Um, same thing with McCartney, uh, these older, older acts, but you're starting to see even the, um, the, the younger generation bands creep into that area as well, where it's, you know, uh, upwards of uh, 70, 80, 80, 90 bucks for, to see a major, a major arena act, uh, you know, whether it's the, whether it's U2, The Cure, uh, Nine Inch Nails, um, you know, they're all, they're all creeping into that stratospheric area. And uh, it's, it's a bad, you know, it, it, it's bad for the long-term growth of the industry, I think. Um, Again, no, no sort of future thinking. No, no thinking about we're we're here together. We're here for the long term. We're here, you know, for the for the fans. There's no sense of you know. Well, they they don't seem to be in it for me. They just they're in it for from you know take to take my money from the fans' right. perspective. Right. And that doesn't really build a relationship. Right. You know, that's no way to build a relationship. Right. It, the uh, the quaint thought that just came into my mind is the. Uh, the image of uh, Bill Graham putting the barrels of apples out in the Winterland for people to come in when they would go see the, the you know, go to see the Grateful Dead or whatever. This sort of, you know, hey, here's something for you for the for the night on us. I mean, that's sort of so yeah. long gone from the whole idea of promoting concerts or selling tickets. Absolutely, and um, you know, it, again, it's it's going to come back and bite them because you know, 
Okay, so X Band can get $125 uh, for you to go see their show, but that's taking a lot of money out of the market for 10 other bands that people might want to see that year. Right, and, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, that's, I think that's, that's, that, you know, that's the, you know, the industry would argue, well, we sold out the show at that price. But, well, you could have possibly spread that money out over nine other shows that these people aren't going to see because right. they can't afford to go see them because they right. could only uh, only afford the one show. Right. And, and what I was going to say, too, is it's, again, thinking long term here in the future, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone thinks like this in the music industry, and maybe this is totally wrongheaded, you tell me, is that w- what happens when the Rolling Stones, the Kisses, the Van Halens, the Paul McCartneys, these big legacy acts who can pack these arenas go away? Well, you know, it's been a question that's been asked a lot, um, uh, you know, in recent years. What uh, once the heritage bands go, uh, the baby boomer acts, uh, the the '70s, '80s superstars, and you know they're running out of time. Is there a new generation of groups that are are waiting in the wings to take over? You know, and some people might say, well, look at look at Daft, something like Daft Punk now. Um, you know. Uh, perhaps the first stadium level uh, electronic band. Right. You know, uh, there are examples of, of bands that have come out uh, in the last uh, ten to twenty years that could they can play at that level. Um, you know, if there, part, part of me is saying, well, there are probably fewer bands like that readily apparent. And then the other, and then part two of that is, does it do people really care that much about seeing? Uh, you know, a band in an arena or a hockey rink or a stadium. I mean, to my mind, it's like, okay, if we don't have stadium shows anymore, it's is it going to be that big of a loss? You know, right. uh, you know. I, I personally, I think the bands who are conducting their careers right now and say touring at a at a at a capacity cl- uh, club level right. or a theater level, auditorium level, uh, those are quite uh, fun shows to see. Still, they're reasonable. In terms of the crowd size, you can still see the band. They're not the size of ants on stage. Everybody has a good time. The band gets well paid, well compensated, but you know they're not getting compensated a million dollars a night like the Rolling Stones. But they're making a good living, and everybody's having a good time. And I'm saying, you know, what would be bad about that scenario? You know, if if that's sort of the if that's the new top end uh, for for the market, you know, it, it wouldn't be a bad thing. I, I, to my mind, it's a much more exciting. Uh, scenario when you have many more bands with the opportunity to tour at a kind of reasonable level as opposed to having a few mega superstars who are right. able to fill stadiums once a year. Right. Right. The, um, the, speaking of stadium acts, the, uh, the new Black Sabbath album is coming out in about a week, and I just uh, happened to uh, look at the website, hasitleaked.com, and, and the Black Sabbath album has supposedly leaked, even though it's being streamed on iTunes, and your book highlights the uh, kind of landmark moment when Radiohead's Kid A leaks in 2000 and then goes to number one. What, what's your what's your take on release dates and the whole idea of leaks anymore? I mean, it seems to be... Well, go ahead. What do you think? I, I you know, I, obviously release dates have sort of gone out the window right. as, a, as a benchmark for when everybody's going to hear the record. I think artists, I, my, in general, talking to artists about it, uh, they, they are somewhat frustrated by this. I, I think they like the idea of you know, everybody hearing the record at the same time and, and sort of forming their own opinion right. uh, without being influenced by the, you know, the, the hipsters out there, uh, the guys who are constantly trolling the net for leaks. 
having their say before everybody else does and influencing uh, the outcome, as it were, or the opinion. You know, people writing off the album a week before it's released, you know, before everybody really right. gets, it, gets to hear it, you know. And I can understand where an artist would be frustrated by that sort of scenario. But again, you know, it's about controlling... Um, it's about control. Uh, I think that's what, when we go back to the Metallica issue, one thing that Ulrich said to me that made sense uh, was that the one thing the band really objected to with the whole Napster thing was it wasn't their, they didn't have control of their music anymore. And the one thing that they wanted from day one as artists was, you know, control of our music. We decide you know, how our music is, when our music is distributed, uh, who, you know, when people are going to hear it, when it should come out. We don't want stuff leaking out there that we don't want out there, that kind of thing. And I understand that impulse, you know. The Internet, in a way, has turned that into a free-for-all. There, there is no control, you know. It, 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 is, it has become its own monster. And, you know, as soon as there is even a hint of somebody working on a new record, uh, inevitably something leaks, and now you're seeing artists taking control of the leak, and now the leak date is becoming, you know, more important than the actual um, date of the sale. Right. You know, it's becoming this whole little subplot. Uh, Kanye's going to leak his album today, you know? <laughs> it's right. like, you know, the artists are taking control of the process again. Radiohead, I think one of the reasons that Radiohead did the In Rainbows experiment is that they could control the release date. They they finished the album. They said, okay, now we're going to put it up. Before anybody else gets a chance to leak it, we're going to leak it, you know, and we're going to let people control. We're going to let people uh, hear the record on our terms. And you know, very smart move because they got a bunch of email addresses out of it. You know, right. they controlled the process. Right. Um, so it, it, it to me, it's fascinating the way the market's shifting and and the way bands are dealing with that issue. You know, they can throw their hands up and say, "Oh, well, you know, I wish it was, I wish it wasn't like that," or they can be proactive about it and do do really creative things like we've seen in the last few years. Really creative ways of releasing music, uh, artists taking control of their music, letting their fans hear it sooner maybe than the record company would have liked. You know, whether it's Radiohead, Nine Inch Nails. Right. Bowie, you know, Justin Timberlake, uh, Daft Punk, all of these groups did really interesting things with the way they they um, they got their music out there. And in, in a way that I think was beneficial, not only to the band, but to the fans as well, right. who were eager to hear this music as soon as possible. Right. Uh, I think that's the whole impulse. I think what Radiohead recognizes, our fans really, really like our music. And as soon as they hear that we've got something new out there, the, their first impulse is, I want to hear it. I don't care how I get it. I just want to hear it because I'm a big fan of these guys. They understood that impulse. They said, "No, no, can't have it. Our record's done, but it's not going to be out for another three months." Their whole attitude is, "Okay, you want to hear hear this stuff? We'll we'll put it out through our website, you right. know, and and let you let you decide." And I think the you know corollary to that is you've got nothing to fear if the music kicks butt if it's really good. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you're making good music, great music that your fans love. You will be rewarded. People will, you know, people will buy something. Maybe, maybe they won't necessarily buy that song or buy that record, but they'll, they'll come out and see you on tour. Or they'll buy something else that you're right. that you're selling. You know, make quality work. We'll get we'll get rewarded one way or another. I think that's the way this system is set up to work. And um, the, the the hard part is a making the quality work and then sustaining that over a period right. of time. That's that's where the real difficulties come in. And a lot of bands and a lot of artists. And a lot of pundits who are making the making arguments for and against 
the way things have gone the last 10 years missed that very central point, and that's something that has not changed. You know, I, I was in a room full of um, uh, mostly artists. I, I did a talk on this in North Carolina. It's a very heavy area for a lot of indie bands, and there was a lot of outrage about, you know, again, uh, you, know, my, I, you know, all these people are sharing files and downloading music, and I'm not getting any money for it, you know, and I've been a band for 10 years. And I, you know, I, I, I sort of said to, to this one guy, I said, well, what if your band sucks? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I, right. I didn't want to be cruel or anything, but I said, maybe your music just isn't that good. Right. And I haven't heard your music, but may, maybe there's a reason that people aren't buying your stuff, right. you know, that, that is beyond uh, the way you, you, you perceive this economic system out there. You know, first of all, I think you're, you're in bad shape if nobody wants to listen to your music, even if it's for free. You know, if, if you say, come, come to me today and say, 10,000 people stream my song, and, and with, the, with the idea being that uh, nobody bought it. I didn't get a penny out of that. And I, I said the real heartbreak would be if 10,000 people didn't stream your song today. The, the, it was completely ignored. You know, that would be the real heartbreak to me. So it, to me, it's, it's, you know, especially if you're a new band, this is an ideal way to expose yourself. And the idea of playing with release date and, 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 and getting the music out there as soon as it's available rather than waiting for some record, com- record company marketing date uh, so that the, you know, all, the, all the ducks can be lined up for the marketing campaign uh, is a refreshing change. You know, I think it's kind of exciting. It's added some excitement to the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you was one more question for our traditional final question about what you're working on now. But um, if there was going to be a ripped two, which I hope you are going to write another book, um, the the thing that I see bubbling up more and more is this issue of loudness. In other words, the idea for people who don't know, this idea that the music is kind of squished together and everything is equally loud, so there's no dynamic range in the music. What, do you think that's really going to eventually come back to hurt the industry, or is that kind of a music geek issue? Because I, I do see more and more people understanding and knowing about it. Yeah, it's. Um, I think, uh, you know, to my mind, that was a phenomenon sort of uh, dictated by radio um, right. and, and squishing this stuff into the middle uh, to, to maximize radio airplay, um, you know, sort of addressing uh, one aspect of the industry kind of uh, and, and giving it maybe more influence than it deserves because so few songs actually do get played on radio. Right. But, uh, you know, I think the idea of technology and sound quality i mean they're related um i don't think um people who will lament the you know how poor mp3 sound over ipods or cell phones i mean they're, i'm not i'm not uh disagreeing with them you know streaming a song on your cell phone is not going to be the same as hearing it over a high quality stereo system right but then the the flip side of that is when did it, whenever did people in the history of music listen to music on a mass scale on high quality sound systems. I mean, there are people who have high quality sound systems. Don't get me wrong, and they're audiophiles and they're way into uh, sound quality, etc. But the vast majority of people listen to, you know, you know, growing up, my sister had the the Sears right. fold out right. uh, record player and, right. and stacked their forty fives, and they all sounded like crap because they were scratchy from being stacked on top of right. each other. And we listened to. Listen to music on a on a dashboard uh, car radio. Uh, that was how we got most of our music through a car radio, a, a car system. I wouldn't even call it a stereo. It was just a crappy little speaker in the corner of a car. Yep. Uh, and and you're kind of thinking, okay, 
people who are lamenting how these iP- how bad these iPods sounding, you know, the music comes through the eye, you know, th- through the earbuds, and you're missing, you're missing probably at least half to eighty percent of the information. And and believe me, I've done an A/B comparison. And for example, you know, the the initial download on the AP on the um, uh, Radiohead in Rainbow's record versus the finished product, which you got, you know, a few months later via the vinyl or the the CD. Uh, there was a, a, a noticeable difference in the quality of the sound of those two things. Right. So that it could be argued that you really didn't get the full effect of that record or, or, or how well done that record was by listening to the Radiohead authorized you know, download. Uh, and I think the band knew that. It was kind of like, okay, we're going to give you this uh, 120 megabyte file, but be warned, this is just kind of a... This is like a, a scratchy demo compared to the real thing. We just want to want, want you to hear the music. Hopefully, you'll come back and buy the real thing a few months later. Right. And fan, fans were pick, ticked off about that. They felt ripped off. And I go, wait a minute, they gave it to you for free. Right. You know, it's like, what do you want? You know. Right. I mean, right. they, they did you a great favor by playing this music. So, you know, you should have given us the wave file and et cetera. Right. You know, well, okay. Um, but anyway, the point being that technology, there are always going to be these issues. The majority of people at any given time are going to be listening to music over poor quality sound systems, you know, at substandard, uh, at substandard uh, quality. And um, it, that's just the way it's going to be. Right. I do think that technology is going to keep getting better and better. And I think that, you know, eventually we're going to get great sounding uh, portable devices. Those will become available where you can get really high quality sound through ear, you know earphones on a portable device uh, that you can stick inside your pocket you know it may not happen next year but I think I think that day is coming and, um, and that'll be a great day I mean the portability and convenience are always going to trump trump uh, sound quality and I think people who are arguing about sound quality and I'm not dismissing them at all because I am a I love great sounding music uh, but at the same time, you've got to understand how the vast majority of people think, and it's more about convenience and portability. The key is, can you make it convenient, can you make it portable, and can you make it also sound great? Right. Once you get those three things together, you've really got something. The sound great part hasn't arrived yet, but I think I think that day is coming. I think that day is coming. Right. Well, um, in closing, I'd love to hear about any <clears throat> excuse me any books that you're working on or any projects and um, give you an opportunity to tell people where they can catch up with you online at your website. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to. Uh, I've actually just finished uh, another book. Um, it's a biography of the Staple Singers and and Mavis Staples. Um, it's called I'll Take You There. It's going to be put out uh, by Scribner, uh, which basically published the uh, Ripped book uh, in uh, in early 2014. So January of next year. Uh, that book will be out. I've been working on that for a couple of years. It's a pretty big project. It takes the band, uh, takes the group all the way back to its beginnings. Uh, Pop Staples, the patriarch of the family, was uh, born in Mississippi on a sharecropper's farm. His grandfather was a slave, and uh, you know that's where he learned to play the blues. That's where he uh, he started singing gospel music. Came to Chicago in the '30s at the height of the Depression. Uh, brought his family up here. Mavis, uh, Mavis, and most of her siblings were born in Chicago. Uh, they became one of the biggest gospel groups of the 50s and 60s. They were Martin Luther King's uh, chosen group uh, to, as part of the civil rights movement in the 60s. Uh, you know, working with him side by side. Then they had the huge run of hits at, at Stax Records in Memphis in the 
in the 70s with I'll Take You There and Respect Yourself, songs like that. They perform at the Watts Stacks Festival. And then uh, Mavis has had an incredible um, run here in her 70s, um, septuagenarian legend uh, in, our, in our midst here, mm. uh, performing, you know, doing records now with people like Ry Cooter and lately Jeff Tweedy of Wilco. Right. Uh, that have been uh, f- extremely well received. So, um, you know, it's a great American story, and um, I'm, I'm pretty. I, I, I think it was the most challenging book I ever worked on, and just in terms of the scope of it, um, you know, because you're talking about not only music, but you're talking about a, 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 a cultural story. You're talking about the uh, civil rights movement. You're talking about. Um, you know, growing up on the south side of Chicago at the height of, uh, you know, the black diaspora from the south. Right. Um, a lot of different stories weaving through it, and, and, and basically Mavis being the, being the center of that story. But to my mind, she's, um, she's the greatest American soul singer of the last uh, 50 years. I think uh, Aretha is the one who gets all the props, and in terms of just vocal strength, Aretha may be a more versatile singer in some ways, but I think in terms of just warmth and stage presence and uh uh you know uh dynamism as a as a performer i think uh i think mavis is is uh the performer of our time and you know it i'm, I'm the, the book wouldn't have been written couldn't have been written had mavis not had this reemergence in the last few years because right. i think her family was really forgotten when i pitched this book 10 years ago publishers were asking me who yeah. they didn't they didn't know who who right. i was talking about and when this came up again a few years ago, I was like, "Oh yeah, we, you know, that we definitely want that." I saw her on, uh, you know, I saw her on Conan, or I saw her on, uh, you know, um, any variety of uh, television talk shows. So suddenly, suddenly she's back in the game, you know, in a big way, and it's a great thing because it's a great story. Right. Yeah. Um, just very quickly, of course. Yeah. When I saw the last, <coughs> excuse me, the last waltz as a, as a teenager, you know, you know, oh Clapton, there's this person, there's that person, oh. and you're like the Staples, you know, and of course, who, who, who are these? Who are these people? Um, and it sounds like an amazing uh, book, and I, I hope you'd come back on the show uh, with me or one of my co-hosts and uh, talk about it when you uh, get it through and out. Oh, I'd love to. I appreciate the time. It's uh, great talking to you. It's a pleasure. And so uh, where can people visit you online? Uh, my, I've got a website, uh, uh, gregcott.com, uh, that has a link to my uh, blog in the, in the Tribune. And uh, I've also got uh, posted there, I've got links to all my books uh, as well and, and some of my other writing. Uh, I've, done, I've done extensive writing for Rolling Stone and uh, other magazines as well. So uh, that's probably the best place to start. Sounds great. Hey, Greg, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Greg, thanks for the time as well. I appreciate it as well. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a conversation with Greg Cott about his book, Ripped, How the Wired Generation Revolutionized Music, which was published by Scribner in 2009. Please check back frequently with new books and popular music or subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss a podcast. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thanks for taking the time to listen.